Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cut deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's the Friday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we're here to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, pretty much anything going on in your life. As you know by now, the Bible, I believe, has all of the answers. So we'll do the best that we can. You can ask those questions by dialing area code 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free by dialing one 630 kslr That's 630 uh, you can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, I remind you always because I want you safe. The safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature of the free KSLR mobile app. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer by hitting the call now button and everything should work just fine. One more time, 340-9585. Because it's Friday, now you know we almost always have a Friday Night Bible Study. Tonight we're not here at Calvary Chapel, so if you're tuning in or if you're planning on visiting, it won't be a Bible study. This is the night every year that we honor our graduates, and we do that by giving them the opportunity to share. You know, one of the things that uh, we're always aware of here, money is always so tight here. Um, This school costs a lot, and it's completely supported by the people in this body. So the Friday night after the graduation is that night where the body here at Calvary Chapel sort of gets to see uh, how they got their money's worth. You know, what's the fruit that comes from supporting a free school? Uh, among other things, the other ministries. But uh, tonight, we're always blessed because those who are, they woke up uh, no longer high school students today. They woke up sort of on their road to adulthood. Uh, the graduates will be sharing tonight. Each one of them will get about five minutes just to share their heart, say thanks to the body. Uh, and it's always a really, really good time. So that's tonight here at Calvary Chapel, San Antonio, 7 o'clock. Uh, children's Church, child care available. Um, we will be having a, a, a brief set of worship before we turn it over to the kids. But it's always great to hear their hearts. So that's tonight. One more thing I want to remind you of. I'll try to remind you at the end of the study or at the end of the program today as well, if I can remember. Uh, And that's on Monday because of the holiday. We will not be having a live broadcast. It will be a pre-recorded broadcast, so if you tune in and it sounds familiar, that's why. Uh, But we won't be taking phone calls on Monday. Uh, Save them up for Tuesday, or better yet, uh, call ahead today. And uh, as you know, I love your live questions. Okay, so let me get to some questions that have been sent in. Uh, Our first one comes from our mobile app from Kirby. And the question is, Pastor Ron, would Proverbs 24 
verses 21 and 22 apply to us here in the United States in the current climate of political upheaval? And if so, should we encourage the brethren in our church to do to adhere to it as Christians, no matter our political affiliations, or should politics stay out of the body? And then the question is asked, is politics a proverbial elephant in the room? Uh, not in a church room, I hope, Kirby. Politics has no place in the church. Let me read uh, Proverbs 24, uh, those two verses, beginning verse 21. Solomon writes, Fear the Lord and the King, my son, and do not join with the rebellious. For those two will send sudden destruction upon them, uh, and who knows what calamities they bring. Um, so the idea is fear the Lord and the King. Yeah, that applies, Kirby, to our current church climate. Always, we, we need to be men who are under authority and women who are under authority. Authority is a big deal. Now, let me take just a minute to sort of go off here. You remember when Jesus was with the Roman centurion and the Roman centurion said, oh, you don't need to come to my house. Just say the word. My servant will be healed. And he began all that by saying, look, I'm a man under authority. I say to one person, go when he goes. I say to another, come and they come. Uh, In other words, he was in a position of authority. And as such, he recognized greater authority in the presence. And Jesus, when he was responding to the centurion, He looked at his disciples and he said, I've not found such great faith in all of Israel. Now, it's a really, really hard thing to understand. Jesus was talking to a Gentile. He looks at his Jewish disciples. Now, these are the men who are going to be apostles, men who wrote our Bibles, much of it. And basically, he was scolding them. This centurion gets it. You guys don't. Well, I think the idea here that Jesus was communicating was that being under authority takes great faith. You know, sometimes we look at politicians and we don't agree with them and we don't want to uh, uh, honor them. We don't want to be obedient to them. And we just think, well, they don't know anything about me or, or they don't have my best interests at heart. But remember, government is a gift given by God. It doesn't say good government. It says all government is a gift by God. So um, when he says, fear the Lord, of course, that's for everybody always. But the king is the same thing. And, um, you know, we, we simply have to be good citizens, obedient. Now, we live in a country, obviously, Kirby, where we treasure our freedom of dissent. But the freedom of dissent never comes with it from a biblical perspective. And that's what we're concerned about here on this program never comes with it the right to disobey, the right to join in rebellion. Well, how can we do that if we disagree with something? Then, well, the answer is faith. Authority is faith. I had an unpleasant counseling session very recently where a woman refused to submit to the authority of her husband. It doesn't make him boss. It makes them partners. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion about that. But the thing that we have to remember is you don't submit to somebody because your husband deserves submitting or because you trust him. You do it because you trust God. Well, the same thing is true, Kirby, in the political climate that we live in. Uh, Believe me, nobody in government has God's best interests at heart. Now, there are Christians who are among our leaders in this country. But political expedience has nothing to do with faithfulness. We live in a world, our world in particular, that is so rebelled against God that now you can't even share your faith with people. In California, as an example, they're getting to the point where they're outlawing any type of counseling in the name of Jesus Christ. There's a bill currently going through the legislature which is going to make that a criminal act. So if you were in California, same thing is true. It's just different a little bit here in Texas. But how do you submit to that kind of authority? How do you be a good citizen? You have the right to vote. You have the right to write letters. You have the right to share your political opinions. 
But as Christians, we have forfeited, we have given to Jesus Christ our right to rebel. And if we don't understand that, we don't understand anything that the Bible says to us. So great question, very important question. Being under authority, any type of authority, takes a great deal of faith, and we desperately, desperately need to exercise faith at all levels of authority. So I hope that answers your question, Kirby. Thank you very, very much for calling. Here is our next question. This one comes from our email inbox from Lori. She says, I've been listening to your teachings in Genesis. They've been amazing. I just finished Genesis 8 about the ark that Noah built. My question is, if the ark landed atop Mount Ararat, which is over 15,000 feet in elevation, how do you think they all got down? Well, Lori, thanks for enjoying the teachings in Genesis. Uh, it, it is actually one of the two or three most fun books in all of the Bible for a Bible teacher to teach. I mean, it's just a blast. So uh, I, I, I'm glad you're enjoying them. Um, how did they get down? They would have climbed. Now, I want you to remember something about Noah's family. They were protected by God. Now, this this is dangerous. They weren't mountain climbers. Certainly, they weren't equipped. But But this was a family through whom God was going to repopulate the earth. And they were protected. They were not in a bubble. I mean, they weren't immune from difficult things or bad things. But, but God's plan was going to be accomplished, and this was the family through whom the rest of the world was going to come. You know, we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. We know that for sure. But, but even more directly, we're all descendants of Noah and his family. So it's very important that we understand that they were protected by God. This wouldn't have been something that they would have had to worry about or be concerned about uh, as the, 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 the ark came to rest on what people believe is Mount Ararat. Um, they would have made their way down very, very safely in the hands of God. Now, I wanted to point that out because too many of us, we are so fearful of things that we think, well, well, what if I get hurt or what if something bad happens? Here's something I tell my church frequently. We as Christians are invincible until God's done with us. Now, sometimes that comes before we're ready or it comes prematurely, at least from an earthly perspective. But God is the one who began our faith, the author, he is the finisher or perfecter of our faith. He will carry on the work that we are doing unto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So all we have to do, Lori, is be with him where he is. And if we're where he is, then we're going to be safe, even in those times where it's really, really scary. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, Lori, I'm really, really happy that you are um, enjoying the Genesis series. Let's go to line one. We've got George calling from San Antonio. George, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. This is George. Hi, George. George, let me let me apologize oh. to you. I just I just heard somebody tell me that you've been on hold for eight minutes. I'm so sorry. I didn't see the bulletin. Oh, that's all right. I'm I'm in no rush. I'm just kind of sitting here chilling, <laughs> listening to you. So Thank you, okay. George. Uh, yeah, Pastor Ron, I, let me just see if I can put this question into something that can be understood. Um, well, first off, my wife is very ill right now. She's possibly, um, well, you know, we don't like to think it's toward the end of her life, but it could be. Um, just don't know. But with that in mind, um, I don't know why I find myself worrying about her eternal destiny or whatever. She's so by all, by all things I can see, Christian, she likes to go to church, she worships, she likes praise and worship, she prays. And then I get to see, thinking, there's some verses in the Bible that bother me a little bit, like the ones that talk about the narrow gate, and then there's the ones that talk about, um, oh, I don't know, I've heard you say, um, of all the folks that attend church, maybe a certain percentage actually make it through and go to heaven. Um, and another little thing is, uh, not too long ago, I prayed I had her repeat after me the sinner's prayer, and she was sincere. She pr she prayed it, and I think she meant it. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, with that in mind, 
uh, I, know, I know it's not difficult to get, as they say, the old term saved, but um, I just wonder if she was sincere. Is like, like at the end of, I don't know, we, we don't talk about Mr. Olstein, my uh, brother Olstein, if I call him that, where he says he has you pray it and says, if we believe he prayed that prayer, he got born again. Well, hopefully it's that simple, but um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, why would I be worrying about that at this time? <laughs> yeah. George, I, I'm so sorry to hear about your wife, and I don't say this lightly, but I will be praying for both of you, um, and, and I will be doing so constantly, and uh, I would appreciate updates as uh, as her condition progresses, whatever it might be. Let me deal with your question. I, I think, thank you, George, I, I think that um, the, the reason you would be worried about that um, or even more to the point, the reason your wife would be worried about that is because we have an enemy who is relentless. Um, you see, we too often believe that we have to do stuff or that somehow our salvation being uh, realized depends at least in some small part on us. None of that is true. And your wife has given her heart to Jesus Christ. She loves the things that Christians are supposed to love, going to church and, and reading her Bible, those kinds of things. That That's the indication that she really belongs to the Lord. But remember, an enemy is going to try to take advantage of both of you to the very end. Um, he, he has no mercy. He has no compassion. Uh, he's not going to ease up for a moment. And uh, his job is to plant these doubts and fears because what he's trying to do is destroy the, the quality of the time that you have left with your wife. Now, we're going to be praying for God to heal, but, but healing doesn't always or even often occur. So here's what we've got to do. We've got to trust in not how we feel or not trust in the absence of those kinds of thoughts, but instead we trust in what the Bible clearly tells us. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That he gave your wife this, the, the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing your wife's inheritance in heaven. So it doesn't depend on you, it doesn't depend on her. It depends on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and it is the devil's job to cause us to doubt. And as long as we don't doubt, again, you can't help the thoughts coming because they're coming from an outside source, but as long as we don't doubt what the Word of God so clearly says, um, it's just a sign of the assurance that God wants us to have. Uh, what I would do is is take your thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. And when she starts having them, and she will, uh, again, I just know the enemy too well, um, you then can comfort her with what we know. And George, for me, the best way to deal with those kind of things is to open the Word of God and trust once and forever in the absolute truth and finality of those statements of salvation. You know, one of the things that you can do for her is is read Romans chapter 8. Repeat it over and over. Read it twice a day, three times a day. It's not that long. It won't take you that long. And you find the majesty of Jesus' promise. You find these wonderful promises that he's made. And even in the sickness that your wife is dealing with, God is going to work all these things together for the good of both you and her. Why? Because you love God and are called according to his purpose. And then, George, and I hope this doesn't sound too um, sad to deal with, but, you know, when the time comes and this does result in the end of her life, you will be able to know with 100% certainty that when she left the body, the real woman who, who is your wife, she leaves this body that's worn out. She will be in the presence of Jesus instantly, looking into those eyes, blazing in holiness, looking into the face that's shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. She will hear Jesus say to her a name. It's not her name, at least the name you know her by, but it's a new name given in heaven. And what she will hear is a voice that sounds like many rushing waters claiming her for himself. 
And see, these are the things where you need faith to battle the doubts. It's not blind faith. It's faith based on the promises of the, the, the word of God. And, and when you respond to those thoughts that the enemy brings in, you can take those thoughts captive and suddenly he can't use them against you because you're going to turn those thoughts into believing in the promises of God. George, I'm really sorry for the difficulty you're going through, but look for Jesus every day. And what will happen in the process is he will show up for both of you. And his grace is an amazing thing to behold. And God will meet both of you in different ways, but at the same time, with exactly the grace that you need. George, thanks for calling. And you can keep me posted on how you're doing. Now I know there's going to be a bunch of people praying for you and for your wife. But please, uh, please keep us posted. Appreciate the call, George. Thank you. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure, George. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. You know, we all have really great faith, don't we, when everything's going well. We have great faith. And then something happens and we start to ask questions, we start to doubt. The enemy's always there. Peter says he prowls around like a, a lion looking to devour people what we have to do is exercise that faith when things aren't going well those of you in the audience if you've been listening for a length of time let me share with you a little bit of about an anniversary that I'm having today that I don't want to have but it's nothing I can do anything about it was one year ago today when I was taken into an operating room. Now, I've never been sick. I've never had uh, heart issues, um, never had surgery. I mean, I had my tonsils taken out when I was a little kid, so I don't remember that. But, I, I mean, God had blessed me and, and Paula as well with wonderful health. And, you know, I've ministered to so many people who got bad doctor's reports or who people went through, through health crises and didn't know whether they were going to make it. Some of them didn't. And you think you know all this stuff. When I'm laying on that hospital bed and being wheeled into an operating room with the word sudden cardiac death ringing in my ears, there were all kinds of questions. And I think I have great faith. I don't say that as boasting. I just trust God with everything. And I was under attack in that operating room as I've never been under attack before. Paula was in a waiting room and I know she too was under attack. We were both afraid. And it wasn't that I was afraid of dying and being with Jesus. Now, I didn't want to die, of course. I, I knew where I was going. It wasn't doubt about my salvation. It was just a moment when I had exercised my faith. You know what I did? They started to put me under. I said, I don't want to go under. They gave me a local anesthetic, a very strong one, and they had a drip going on. They said, oh, you'll go to sleep. I said, no, I really don't think I will. I don't want to. And I wanted to spend that time praying. You know what I wanted to do if, if, if the surgery somehow went wrong? One year ago today, if the surgery somehow went wrong, I wanted to go to Jesus talking to him. I want to leave my body on that operating room talking to Jesus and then in the next instant be in his presence still talking to him. And I didn't go under. I wanted to be with him. And of course God brought me through and spared us Paul in particular, the pain of, of losing me. But you see, when you go through things like that, you're so much more able and equipped to minister to people who are going through those things, comforting others with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. None of us are promised tomorrow. 
think we have to exercise that faith every day to be ready for when that day really comes. And George, I know you're still listening, so let me just say this. One of the things that I've learned in this last year, not just with my experience, but with many others that we're going through here with the, here at the church, I've learned that sometimes the person that needs the prayer the most is the spouse of the one who's ill. So trust in what you know. Don't let the enemy make you doubt or, or, or worry about something that you're not sure of. Instead, hold on with all of your strength to what you know. George, thanks for letting us in so that we can be praying. Let me, we get just a 30 seconds or so left in this side of the break. Jesus, I ask you, Lord, to touch George's wife, to touch and heal, if that's your will. It's certainly our, our request, Lord. And I ask you, Jesus, to give George an assurance that you're the one in charge. Bless them, Jesus. Amen. Well, we've got 30 minutes left in the week, 340-9585. I'd love your live calls and questions. We have 30 minutes left, area code 877-630-KSLR. If you're out of town, you're listening to the Word to Send Them for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our final 30 minutes of this week here is a question from robert he says oh you know what i meant to do this one yesterday i did touched on it yesterday at the end and robert i i apologize i meant to do it very first thing on today's program because i only was able to to give you a little bit of time with this question uh the question was what does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner and robert what i said it's to 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 be in rebellion against god or or sin to treat it like it's sort of an eternal life insurance policy you know they're Christians are speaking in tongues, they're doing all these Christian things, but we remember the church in Corinth to whom Paul gave this warning, they were living such carnal lives, and Paul was warning them that there are consequences to doing that. Now, I'll give you an example, 2,000 years into the future, in the time that we live. Every Communion Sunday, which for us here is the first Sunday of the month, um, I tell people that two things. I say it's a family celebration. That means if you're a Christian and you have no intention of giving your heart to Jesus, then just let the elements pass by. We'll be dismissing in a few minutes, and you'll be free to go. But then I tell them I can make you the guest of honor by asking you to come into our family, give your life and your heart to Jesus Christ. But then to believers, I want them to know that this is a serious occasion. It's very solemn. These are the symbols of our faith. Why I know I'm going to heaven. Jesus died. He paid the price for my sins. That's how I know that the the peace I have came at a cost, the price. But I also know that by dying, I won't die. So it's very, very serious. Now, here's the problem, Robert. We have people, and we watch the communion elements being passed, People that I know are living together. They're not married. They're fornicating. Um, People I know that are angry all the time. Marriages are in a mess. And, And from my vantage point at the front of the church, I'm just thinking, oh, Lord, they don't understand And we just sort of go through the motions without ever repenting of our sins. So what it means to take communion in an unworthy manner, Robert, is to to do it without repenting of your sins, without asking God to examine your heart. Paul says that we're to examine ourselves every day to make sure that we're in the faith. How much more 
when we come to the table of Jesus. Communion, the word in the Greek is koinonia. And it means oneness. It's spiritual intercourse. How can we do that when we're unwilling to repent of our sins? And I'm betting that there's a whole bunch of people, every communion, who are doing it without really examining their hearts. That's a very dangerous thing. So, Robert, that's what I wanted to add. I simply ran out of time yesterday. So thank you for being patient with me. I'm sorry it took so long. Uh, Here is a question from Linda. She wants to know, what is the difference between the Holy Spirit being in you and coming upon you? Um, Linda, when, when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. Ephesians 1.14, given to us as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. Sort of a down payment. When Jesus, post-resurrection, breathed on his disciples and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God came to live in them, to quicken their hearts. When he comes upon you, the context there is in power. And he comes upon you to, to do something you're called to do. I'll give you an example. If you're going to go out and, and street witness or you're going to share Jesus with people at work, um, you, you're being obedient. Acts 5.32 says obedience is the trigger. The Spirit of God is going to come upon you. Sometimes it manifests in gifts of the Spirit. But everything, Linda, that we do needs to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's another difficulty with far too much of the church. We think we can do things on our own. We don't even ask to be filled every day with God's Spirit. We don't ask for opportunities to share our faith. We don't look for opportunities to pray for people, to pray for healing or to pray for God's peace or whatever the prayer need might be. And we just sort of go through life just taking what happens as it happens and dealing with it instead of saying, God, you've got all this power available to me and I want that power. So Linda, being filled with the Holy Spirit, having him come upon you, not living in you, that's that's a matter of fact. For everybody who is a believer, a born-again Christian. But we've got to let that power go. And we do that by dying to self, by being obedient, and walking with Jesus. If we do that, God will use you. It's always frustrating. Paul says that we're not to quench the Holy Spirit. I think most of us are expert spirit quenchers. Because we do what we want instead of what he wants. We do things in our strength, which really is no strength at all, instead of relying on the Holy Spirit for everything that we're called to do. And if you want to be filled with the Spirit in power, it's simply a matter of understanding that the Spirit has been given to you and he's just waiting to be unleashed. Doesn't that sound better? Instead of quenching the Holy Spirit, we unleash the Holy Spirit. And we can do that, Linda, simply by being with Jesus every day. So I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, Here is a question anonymously addressed to me. Pastor Ron, would you marry people if they are living together? And would you marry a believer who wants to marry an unbeliever? Um, I, I would marry people if they're living together but only if and when um, they agreed to separate for a time, however long or short that time is, is relatively insignificant. But, but what we want to do is give everybody the opportunity to get right with God and stay right with God. So, yes, I would do that. Now, if I went to somebody who was living together, I talked about people taking communion who I know are living in sin. If they would say to me, no, Pastor, I don't, that's not necessary. We're not going to separate. We're okay. We just want to get married so we can be right with God. I, I would tell them, I can't do that wedding. If you're not willing to repent, you're not even acknowledging that you're in sin. And if you acknowledge it, what you're doing is sinful. A real Christian would want immediately to be out of sin. 
So those are situational for me, Anonymous. Depending on how they respond, I want to know where their heart is. But, but, but we often will tell people, they'll come up, get saved, and we'll, we'll start talking to them. They'll start sharing their life a little bit with us. We'll say, well, you know, you can't, as a Christian, you can't live together with somebody. You can't have sex with somebody that you're not married to. You belong to Jesus now. If the salvation is genuine, then they're okay with that. If they argue with you, you know, got problems. So my choice to marry them would be based on, on their respond and their the genuineness or lack of same uh, with their repentance. Um, regarding a believer marrying an unbeliever, I would never, ever, ever, ever do that. Now, I'm sure I have unaware. I've uh, done lots and lots of weddings in 23 years. By the way, our birthday here as a church is May 31st. I just thought that we're coming up on a, on a birthday as a church. Um, but But... Never intentionally, uh, knowingly, would I marry a believer and an unbeliever. Uh, I would marry two unbelievers. They're not unequally yoked. God gave marriage to mankind, not just to Christians. So I would do that, but I would never marry, knowingly marry a believer and an unbeliever. Um, We have men and women frequently who say they've found the one, they're in love. And my question is, well, where do they go to church? Tell me about their walk with Jesus. Well, they're not a believer, but... And and it breaks my heart. Wait, why would you even consider that? And I know they're lonely, and I know they're attracted to this person. I've gotten every answer you can possibly imagine. But there is no way I would knowingly perform that kind of wedding. I would be condemning them to an absolute lifetime of pain. And that's just not something that I would ever do. Anne wants to know, what makes someone makes what someone believes heretical? I don't understand why some beliefs are valid and others are not. Well, heresy, Anne, is almost always determined by um, who Jesus is. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Muslim belief system is a valid world religion. But it's heretical because they don't believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and God the Son. Muslims believe Jesus was a prophet in their own way. They, they, they claim to be honoring him when in reality they're not honoring him at all because they're demoting him. He's God in human flesh. So that's a heresy. Uh, a heresy is a teaching that contradicts the Bible. It's not just differences in doctrine. But, for instance, a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, they say they believe in Jesus. They would readily say he's the Son of God. But they don't believe he is God the Son, the one who said, let there be light, and there was light, the creator of all things. They believe he was a created being. That's heresy. Prosperity teaching, and. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's heretical. It distorts the nature of God. It flies in the face of what the scriptures say. So, most often heresy deals with the character, the nature of God, who he is, Jesus Christ. Is he God in human flesh? That's heresy. But there are other heresies that are doctrinal because they distort the person of Jesus Christ and his character and his nature. So I hope that makes sense to you. Um, you know, if somebody, a Catholic, I, I can say, and we get lots of Catholic questions, and this audience knows where I stand on Catholicism. However, I know there are Catholics who are saved. I think it's harder to be saved in the Catholic Church because they don't teach you got to be born again. Their, their, their doctrine is horrible. But they serve the same Father, the same Son, and the same Holy Spirit. So I can say that, well, Catholicism as a religion is false. There are real Christians who are Catholics. Sadly, just not nearly as many as they think. 
So that's the difference between heresy and just bad doctrine. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. As we wind down this week, we've still got time for a call or two and some questions. Here is a question from Jack. Pastor Ron, how do we answer when someone says what we believe as Christians is old-fashioned and shouldn't be believed today? Jack, I always do it the same way. Uh, I just tell them, it's okay if you think I'm old-fashioned, God is old. And I mean that seriously. And in answering them like that, I don't defend it. I don't say, well, you know, I know the world is changing. Uh, I want to emphasize the fact that God never changes. I want you to think about something, Jack. When someone says to you what you believe is old-fashioned, you can say, well, God, who's been around from the very beginning, doesn't change his mind. Our Bible says God doesn't change. His character, his nature doesn't change. So if it was wrong 5,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago, is it still not wrong today? That's a logic that they can't resist. Now, they may just say, well, I don't care. But the idea is when somebody says something like that, we want them to own their unbelief. We don't want them to to, to leave the conversation thinking that somehow they're okay with God and, and they're going to be in heaven. The world says that what we believe really is old-fashioned. But remember, Jesus is the Ancient of Days. And as the Ancient of Days, shouldn't we walk in those ancient paths? That's what the Bible tells us to do. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And if God was perfect at the beginning, he's still perfect now. That means there's no error. Nothing that has to change. If having sex with somebody you're not married to was wrong 2,000 years ago, it's wrong today. If having same gender sex is wrong 2,000 years ago, it's wrong today. There's nothing new that's enlightened us. It's just that the world has changed. God hasn't. And Jack, that's why we who are believers, we really need to hold tightly to the word once and for all delivered to the saints, to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So usually with that response, I get a, I get a reaction. And sometimes, Jack, that reaction actually leads to fruitful conversation. Here's a sad question, anonymous. How should I respond to someone who says they don't love their spouse any longer? Uh, Anonymous, tell them to repent. If they say, well, what do you mean, repent? Well, didn't you promise God that you would love her or love him in good times and bad, for rich or for poor, until death do you part? I always say until Jesus comes for us. And then they, would, they say, well, yeah, but... And I say, well, wait, before you give me the but. How will you stand before Jesus and explain that you don't love the one you promised to love, that you broke your promise? And see, what I want to do by that response, Anonymous, is I want them to, to have to deal with Jesus. You know, they can convince other people that it's okay to leave your spouse that you promised never to leave. But how are you going to explain that to Jesus? And I get the same tired response, Anonymous, over and over. Well, I love him or I love her. I'm just not in love with them. How can that possibly be the case? I understand you don't feel goosebumps. I understand that somebody else has sort of captured your attention. By the way, that's sin. But how do you fall out of love? And if you don't love your spouse any longer, I'd respond by telling them they don't love Jesus any longer. Well, I do love Jesus. No, if Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And, and the point is, I'm not trying to be difficult with them. I'm trying to get them to think what David learned in the middle of his adultery with Bathsheba against thee and thee only, O God, have I sinned. You know, it's too often, well, 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 she did this or he did that. But your sin isn't against him or her. Your sin is against God. And this is one area, Anonymous, where we Christians have lost the fear of God. 
because divorce is so easy. Our marriages are so simple to throw away. We completely forget about the promises that God, oh, God wants me to be happy. No, he doesn't. He wants you to be obedient. But you don't understand how I feel. Well, how you feel doesn't matter. I promise you, you're never going to feel anything positive if you're disobedient to God. He makes it hard for us to walk away from him. So anonymous respond by making them deal with Jesus instead of dealing with their feelings. I hope that helps. Uh, Anthony, I like this question. Anthony says, what is the appropriate age for kids to be in the adult sanctuary? Uh, Anthony, I don't think there is an age. Here's our rule here at Calvary Chapel. If your child can sit and understand and behave, not be a distraction, then everybody's welcome in the sanctuary. But if they can't sit and behave, if mom and dad have to keep scolding them or shushing them, or maybe the the child is distracting mom and dad from hearing the word, well, if that's the case, they're too young to be in the sanctuary. We want them to go to children's church. One, they're going to be taught at their own level. I tell people all the time, and I've had adults come to me and say, well, I just don't think it's fair that my kids couldn't be here. I said, it's not that they can't be here. It's why do you want to subject them to me? I'm not fun. I'm not energetic. I mean, you want your kid to like coming to church, don't you? They're not going to like it. They sit here and you keep telling them, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. In the book of Nehemiah, Anthony, when Ezra the scribe ascended up this enormous pulpit and he opened the word of God, there was this aura of reverence. And says the people in the audience, the audience was made up of people who could understand. And so what I want is people understand. I want people who get it. I don't want them to... Is he done yet? And you know what happens, Anthony, when the kids go into children's church? We have some really gifted, and every church does, but God so loves children. Every church has gifted ministers to the the children. Let them learn at their own level. Now, we teach the same way to kids, verse by verse. We do it more slowly, or we do it in bigger chunks, depending on what's appropriate. But they get it. They have fun. You know what they do? They go and say, I can't wait to go to church next Sunday. And that's what we want to do. You know, Anthony, I remember, um, I've shared on this program before that I wasn't raised in church. I, I, I went to church a couple of times as a little kid because my grandma dragged me. And it was awful. The place smelled like mildew. It was dark. The preacher was a thousand years old. And none of it made any sense to me. I had to wear a tie. I kept getting a headache from having a tie. My grandma could never figure out why I didn't want to go. I don't want to go because of all that. When kids come to our church, it's fun. They learn about Jesus. They have fun. They're with their friends. They develop relationships with adults. They have strength because of the Word of God. And the adults who are teaching them absolutely love the kids and pray for them constantly. And the kids walk away with the idea that, hey, Jesus is fun. One of your kids, Anthony, would have to listen to me. My goodness, I think that would be the worst possible thing that could ever happen. So I hope that's an answer. If they can understand, if they can behave, if they're not distracting their parents, they are more than welcome here. Here is Anonymous with a comment. He or she says, I think it's too simple to believe that all someone has to do is ask to be forgiven and they're set for heaven. 
Well, anonymous, that's the beauty of what we believe. What do you think God needs from you? A pound of flesh? You think he needs you to be good? As we were going through the book of Romans, we had opportunity to talk about this very scenario. God makes it simple. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, then you're saved. You don't have to make up for all your ugly stuff. You're saved. And there are people who believe that's too simple. I always use an example. My very first job was when I was 16 years old. was at McDonald's. And, you know, you go in, you get your uniform. Back then they had aprons and stuff. It wasn't like it is today. And you have this hat. And you see all the other employees with these cool McDonald's hats. So I was ready to get my hat. And they gave me this hat that was red or blue. And it said trainee on it. And what that hat screamed was, I don't know what I'm doing. So if I mess up, go easy on me. Well, when we get saved, Anonymous, we don't get a trainee hat. We don't get a hat that says on probation. We get a hat that says forgiven. And it is easy. It needs to be easy. Because that's the only way that we're ever going to understand how simple God made it and how beautiful that simplicity is. If you think it's too simple, maybe your issue is pride. But I want to tell you, Jesus died for your sins. He paid the price. And there's nothing that you have to do. There's nothing you can do except believe. It really is that simple. And that makes it all the more beautiful. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Remember tonight, our graduates are going to speak here at Calvary Chapel. You can watch it at calvarysa.com if you'd like to do so. Lord willing, I'll be back next week. Not Monday, no live program Monday because of the holiday. Have a great weekend. Tell somebody Jesus loves them. We'll see you next week. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.